0: This is The Bible In Depth with PJ. Join us as we take a deeper look into scriptures and study the Word of God together. Now here is Pastor Jim. We're going to start a new book today, and it's so we finished the the, uh, New Testament Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I believe it took us almost a year and a half to travel through 28 chapters, and because we're more of an in-depth Bible study, and I try to bring about practical application, This is something you can share with anyone you want, if you think it might help them. If you don't think it'll help them, then don't share it with anyone. But if you're watching me live right now, hey, you can just say hello down at the bottom and let me know you're watching live. I know many of you watch it later on or when it goes to our YouTube channel or you podcast it. So, but those of you watch it live, hey, welcome. The new uh, book we're going to begin is this little old Old Testament letter four chapters. It's called Ruth. And Ruth is one of the richest uh, letters that you will ever read. It's got so much substance. It's got so much application. There are multiple ways this letter is going to take you. Now, let me tell you a few things before I even read the first verse by way of introduction. And I'm going to just try to keep introduction as brief as possible, but you just need to know a few things like this. You see, this couple, Elimelech and Naomi, uh, they're they're from Bethlehem. And they're the key figures in the opening chapter here of of this letter. Now, Ruth comes into play as a daughter-in-law. This letter, the things in here about Ruth and Bethlehem and everything else, this is the reason. It is the reason, and this is written... A thousand years before Jesus Christ would be born. But this is the reason that Mary and Joseph, when they're called to go to the land of their you know ancestors to register for the Roman census, it was a tax thing because Romans just want to get more tax. How many people are there? The reason why they leave Nazareth and she's pregnant as pregnant gets and they travel south to Bethlehem to register for the census. The reason why they do that is because of this little letter here. Yes, that's right. Because, you see, they've got to go to their ancestors, which is the house of David, who would be the king of Israel. Ruth, who's gonna be the key player in this whole little letter, of which it's named after, she is David, who will be King David. She is his great-grandmother. Ah. <clears throat> so now, as you put it together, and as the descendants are born, next generation, next generation, from the line of David, David's great-grandmother Ruth, then Mary and Joseph come along that line. Now, they're in Nazareth when they get word that they must travel back. Because, and, and here's why they're in Nazareth, because <clears throat> the descendants of David did settle in Nazareth. They traveled north in Israel. Nazareth sits on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of in a saddle in a, up in the, in the hills up there. And Nazareth comes from the word netzer. Netzer words brand, means branch. And so they called Nazareth the branch town. Basically, they're the branch people. Now, why is that? Well, because in Isaiah 11.1, 1, it says that Jesse, from him, would come a root and a branch which is the Messiah, would come through there. But the descendants went to Nazareth. They call it Branch Town, And so you see how the whole puzzle fits together. It's really interesting the way this happens. And so Mary and Joseph, they travel back. And that's where they're going to register for the census. And that's why Jesus would be born there. Just a real quick, interesting verse. In, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, uh, this is written uh, so many hundreds of years after... Uh, this, um, this statement in Ruth, um, <clears throat> in, in Micah, let me get there, Jonah, Micah, five, and verse two says, um, it says, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. This is talking about the Messiah Jesus Christ to come. His goings forth are from long ago from days of <clears throat> eternity. Now this is written in 700 BC. And so now we see the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We know from Ruth, written in 1000 BC. We know the ancestors uh, the, uh, of, of Jesus, of Mary and Joseph, thus Jesus are from the Bethlehem area. That's why they go back. So you see the pieces of the puzzle being fit together. It's one of the amazing little details that you know, you might not pick up just in your casual reading of the, of the book. Now one of the things I like about this uh, letter is there's going to be, and this is not the part I like, there's going to be some catastrophe. There's going to be some life events that just turn wrong. Things get messed up and they get messed up pretty fast. But yet in this book you see the redemption and you see that God can bring some really good stuff out of some very painful times and that should give you hope. It gives me hope because every one of us from time to time we're going to go through some junk and in their case they make a bad decision and who hasn't made a bad decision and that bad decision is going to cost them but then it's going to lead eventually down the road to some good decisions and a real redemptive story and I like that. I like when there's happy endings to things. I really don't like watching any movies where everything keeps going wrong, going wrong, going wrong, going wrong. I just can't take it. I've mentioned to you in the past, there's a couple of movies that I just can't take like that and so it's very difficult for me to watch something that just keeps going wrong. I need to see some kind of good happen after a while. It just pushes buttons in me. Another thing about this letter that you might want to pay attention to is it will teach single people how to interact in what we call, but they didn't call it, in a dating relationship. How do you treat each other? How do you act? How, 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 do, how do things work out there? When you see finding this love story between Ruth and eventually Boaz, as the book progresses, We will pull out little details like that. So you can see how you interact in a dating relationship. And it's fascinating to see how far we, as a Western civilization, have drifted from some very foundational principles in dating. We started off that way, but we've drifted off uh, very far away. But maybe the most uh, beautiful picture this book really uh, represents is um, It is a picture of Jesus Christ in the church. And what do I mean by that? Well, because Ruth is a Moabite, she's not Jewish, and she will eventually marry Boaz. It will be her second marriage, her first husband will die. Boaz is a Jewish man. Boaz is what's called the kinsman redeemer, and he will redeem her. He's Jewish, she's Gentile. And it's a beautiful picture of Jesus who redeems us, Gentiles, we become the Gentile church. And so that picture is played out. And then the the dates as we go through the times of year are fascinating when things are happening and how it correlates to Jesus Christ and the church and the festivals of Israel. So that comes up in weeks to come. So <clears throat> I think that's about all I think I want to say <clears throat> in the beginning. Now I want to read the first verse and I'm going to I'm only going to cover 5 verses today. And I want to give you some thoughts as I go along that builds uh, builds, uh, for later on in the book. It says in verse 1, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed. That's important. It's in the days of judges. There's a book called Judges right after Joshua. The judges were these rulers. They didn't have a king, but they had these guys that would rise up and be the deliverers of the nation. He would be the main leader because they needed deliverance, these judges. You know some of the names like Gideon and you know Samson. Those, are, those were judges um, in Israel. It says the judges governed. Now there was a famine. Now we find out there's a problem because these guys are they're agricultural. There's a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem. <clears throat> so now we find out the man, the key first male figure, lives in Bethlehem in Judah. Judas, the southern part of Israel, went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Okay, let's let's take some time and let's, let's, let's break this thing apart. The first thing it says, it came about in the time of Judges. That speaks volumes as to why there's going to be a famine in the land. Now, I'm going to take you through two verses. The first one is in the book of Judges. They're both the book of Judges, but Judges 17. And it's the book previous to Ruth, so you don't have to far to turn. 17, verse 6. And this is a key statement in the time of the Judges. It says in, in uh, Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes dangerous way to live. Especially if you're a God-fearing person. You don't want to do what's right in your own eyes. You want to do what's right in God's eyes. You want to do what's right according to this Word. Because we can really mess things up by doing what we feel and what we think is right. Because sometimes that can be so contrary to what God is even telling us to do. So that's one problem in the time of the Judges. There's a bigger problem, I think, than that. and I think it ties with what we just said. Look at Judges chapter 2. It's, this is a really, in my opinion, a real heavy verse that we read over too fast sometimes and we need to think about what it just told us. Look in Judges verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 10. It says this, and this is right after Joshua dies. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So Joshua's generation, God-fearing, followed God, they pass away. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. It doesn't end there. Nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Huh. So now you have another generation after Joshua's that doesn't know God. They don't even know what God has done for them. And so what you draw is this. Here's, here's maybe an application for you. Or thought. This generation knew God, their kids didn't know God. This generation knew God never passed the baton to their children of God. That's dangerous. That we would not pass God on to our kids. That we would not have our children in spiritual elements like a fellowship of church people. That we would not be living and talking about God and how great God is in our homes. That they maybe would never see us even read a Bible at home. That they would never see us wanting to come to church on a regular basis and be in fellowship or be in a group or even lift our hands to God. They would never see these things. And so the baton's not passed to the next generation. I've shared this before. I used to be a student ministries pastor back in the late 80s. And every so often I get a parent, uh, not often, but I get them here and there, would call me and say can you talk to my teenager they don't want to come to youth group anymore which is student ministry or at all even and in the beginning i would say okay i'll call and i would but they're not interested but after a couple of times you know you kind of get wise and i would simply ask the parent when they'd call me i'd say well um i'll be glad to call your teenage uh, kid to get and try to get in church i said but my question is this are you in church and most of the time no they're not and they would say things like oh you know i got to get back in well you know it's too late you you should have been in church with those kids in church from the get go all the way up because you're battling a culture and the demon a demonized demonized system behind the culture that's working to pull your kid away from god so why not get him into a culture a church culture That's bringing them to God. Rather than giving them all the world culture all the time. And then one day when they're 14, 15, 16, you say, oh my gosh, they don't want God. Can you call them? Well, it's too late now because you see, as a pastor, I'm not a miracle worker. You planted a crop and now you're harvesting the crop by not having them in fellowship, by not letting them see a father or mother reading the word, desiring to come to worship God. That's a a big deal, guys. They never passed the baton. So now, when you read here in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, time of the judges, put it together. It's a time when everybody did whatever they wanted. They're the shot callers, right? Eve, Eve, you know, serpent says, you'll be God. Eat the fruit. You'll be God. You're the shot caller. You do whatever's right in your own eyes. So that's the first problem. And then because they're doing whatever's right in their own eyes, they've neglected the spiritual life of their children and now the nation is suffering for it maybe kind of like america right now we're suffering for it because we're seeing the seeds now of secularism and humanism and pluralism come in because we haven't passed the baton now i'm a firm believer that even though it seems too late it's never too late how old your kids are get them back in or start ministering to them and you get your life right or i should say get it fired up again get the light of jesus back in again so that's the time of the judges. <clears throat> now, it says that there is a famine in the land. a famine in the land. Now wait a minute. It says they're in Bethlehem. You know what the word Bethlehem means? House of bread. Does that not make sense? Is that a contradiction? You live in the house of bread, but there's a famine. Wow, Uh, that's interesting to me. Let let me tell you why. Because uh, how many Christians live contradictions? You're from the house of bread, but there's a famine. Let me give you a contradiction. You've been forgiven, but I'm surely not going to forgive them. Here's a contradiction. I should have the joy of the Lord, but boy, am I filled with bitterness about that. Is a contradiction. I serve the Prince of Peace, but I walk around angry all the time. Right? Those are contradictions. Those are contradictions, guys. they, They live in the house of bread, but there's a famine in the land. Now, we can understand now why there is a famine in the house of bread because everybody does what's right in their own eyes and they're not passing the truth of God to their children. So now they're suffering for these things because, see, this is the promised land. This is where God promised them to have a land filled with milk and honey if they just follow God's word and do what God says. I wonder how many lives out there, including Christians, especially Christians, your life could have been so much better had you just followed God's word and just done what God said instead of going with what you feel and what you think and do what's right in your own eyes. And so you see these things start to... Now you see the foundation of, <clears throat> of everything being put together in this situation. You know what's interesting to me? It says, in Judah, Bethlehem in Judah. You, Judah is a southern like state, uh, the tribe. And you know what Judah means? It means praise. Well, now you find them lacking bread, in a famine, in the house of bread... And they're in Judah, which should praise, but they're not praising in a sense anymore. Something's going to go. Tra- something is going tragically wrong, and then they're going to add insult to injury. They're going to make some worse decisions because now you find in verse one that a certain man, we're going to know him as a lima, like in the next verse. Um, this is the father of a family. It says he went to sojourn. Now the word sojourn. He goes to sojourn. It means to turn aside from the way. You and I both know our faith in Jesus. He said, it's a narrow path. Narrow path. Don't turn aside from the way. And how many people keep turning aside from the way? It's a narrow path. He sojourn. He sojourns, guys. Now, a sojourn basically means uh, that you're going for a while. But it's not going to be a while for this guy. This guy's going to sojourn, and uh, it's going to last a long time. I'm going to give you an example of another sojourner who makes a wrong decision, a wrong term. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Now watch this. We're going to look at Abraham. And Abraham, he's got the call of God, and you know, he's going to have a child that's going to be, you know, all, as the stars of the sea, the descent, stars of the sky, the descendants will be in the sand of the seashore. So God's going to give him a child through all the promises coming this way. And then he does this right away after God gives him the promise. Genesis 12, verse 10, we're going to read to you, verse 13. It says, now there was a famine in the land. Oh, now it parallels what's going on where we just read. He's experiencing a famine in the land, in the promised land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn. Oh, he veers off the path because, oh my gosh, we got to get some food here. Sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. So he goes to Egypt. He gets off track because of the famine. And it will come about when the Egyptians see you. I'm sorry, he says, verse 11. It came about when he came near to Egypt, as he's approaching Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Here's what he can tell his wife. See now, um, I know that you are a beautiful woman. He goes, babe, you are one good-looking hottie, man. Verse 12. So he's talking to his wife like that. He says, you know what's going to happen? It's going to come about when the Egyptians see you and how good-looking you are, that they're going to say this. They're going to say, this is his wife. And then they're going to kill me. But they will let you live. They're going to kill me so somebody can take you as their wife. And then in verse 13, he says this, Please say that you are my sister. Now that's a half truth, but it's still only half. So that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Mm. He does the same thing. He takes a wrong turn, just like Elimelech Elimelech will do in, in Ruth, because he looks at the famine, he sees a situation, he's got a wife, Elimelech and like Ruth has a wife and two kids, and so I'm looking, I'm evaluating my situation, and even though God says this is the promised land, I'm going to make a decision to veer out of the promised land and take matters into my own hands because you know what? Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Let me tell you the truth about a follower being a follower of Christ, and it's not easy. It's not easy. What is written is better. And smarter than what is reported." What is written is better and smarter than what is reported. See, the report is, it's a famine. I got to do something. But wait a minute. What's written is, if I keep serving God and live right before Him and live morally according to this word, God will take care of me in the promised land. See, that's what's written. And what will I trust? What I feel and think or what is written? What is reported or what is written? Which one? Well, Elimelech is going to trust what he feels and thinks and sees. And so did Abraham. And they both get themselves in a lot of trouble. And things go wrong really, really fast. Now, I'm a dad. And my kids are all grown now. But I can relate to Elimelech, this man, in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Ruth. Because if you really think about all he's trying to do, though he makes a big mistake by leaving the promised land, he just is, I think his motivation is completely right. But his decision off the motivation is completely wrong because he goes with what he feels and thinks and sees, doing what's right in his own eye, instead of what God says. Um, he just wants to provide for his family. I, I'm, as, a, as a dad and a father, I... I can completely understand that. That is like, that's like the top, top shelf of what your purpose is many times in life as a father and a husband. You want to make sure they're taken care of. Now, I'm not here to make anybody feel bad because I know some have got handicapped, some dads and some have come back from war and they really can't work. And I thank God that our country is a country with safety nets and can help people. Uh, Praise the Lord we live in that kind of a country. Because I've been to third world countries and they don't have those types of things. But if we can work, you know, as a father, I want to work. And I want to do. And I want to succeed. And I want to supply for my kids. I don't want somebody else to give me the money for my kids. I want to be able to do those things. And I think that's what this man is trying to do. And I think that's what drives them to make the decision, wrong one, to leave and go find food somewhere. But, you know, I, so I, I, I kind of have to ride easy on them because, my gosh, may, maybe I would have done the same thing. Because, you know, we can panic and live in fear and, and go off and do all kinds of crazy things trying to figure out what we're doing. I would just tell you, you know, slow down. Don't make these fast, quick decisions. You know, Proverbs says, He who makes haste with his feet errs. If you move too fast, you're prone to make some bad decisions. Slow it down. Calm the emotions down. The emotions are great, but they can sure lie to you. We're led by the Spirit, not by our emotions. Our emotions are the caboose, the Spirit is the engine. The problem is in bad decision making, we reverse it and we let our emotions, the caboose, pull the train and then the engine, the spirit is way in the back. So you gotta be careful with things like that. It says in verse one again, I'm still in verse one, that he sojourns in the land of Moab. Wow, Moab. Uh, Moab is the eastern border of Israel and that's modern day Jordan. And we'll see in in a little bit here uh, something about Moab. Now verse 2, the name of the man, now you're going to get his name and his family names is Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. <sighs> First things first, Um, let's look at the names, what the names of the family members, what they actually mean. Elimelech means God is king. Naomi means pleasant. Melon means song. Killian means satisfaction. Man, you put that stuff together? God is their king. They have pleasant, it's all pleasant in the family. They're singing great songs. They have great satisfaction. What a great family. And then it says, they enter Moab and they remain there. Mm, Moab and remain there. Quickly, Isaiah 16, 6. One little thing, and there's a few things, but I'll just show you one thing about Moab that the Bible teaches about Moab. And we'll go at one later on too at the very end. Uh, at verse 5 when we finish up there. Uh, it says in verse uh, Isaiah 16, 6, it says, We have heard of the pride of Moab. An excessive pride. You can stop right there. So Moab is a picture of pride. So he's, in a sense, prideful, thinking I can make it happen on my own instead of leaning on God. Mm, dangerous place. Now back to Ruth chapter 1, verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Oh man, <clears throat> it goes from famine, which is bad, to leave Israel to Moab and goes really bad, fast. He died and she, Naomi, was left with her two sons. Now she's a widower and she's got two kids. Now these boys are older, they're old enough to be married because verse 4 says they took For themselves, Moabite women as wives. Now they're marrying outside the clan. They're not equally yoked anymore. Now they're compounding the problem. It's getting a little bit worse. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And here comes Ruth, the key player in the story. And they lived there about 10 years. Stop. Don't miss what's going on here. He leads them out of the promised land to sojourn, just for a while. They stay 10 years. 10 years. You see, what happened here is this. A short time turned into a lifetime. And that can happen with bad decisions that are made too quickly because of panic, because we're doing what's right in our own eyes versus what God says. A short time turns into a lifetime. You've heard me say this before. You make a wrong turn while driving, you waste five, ten minutes. You make a wrong turn in life, you can waste five, ten years trying to get pulling yourself out of that one. So be wise and be very careful of these things. But can you imagine the catastrophe? And, and, it's, and guys, it's going to get worse. Watch this in verse five. Then both Malon and Kilian, those are the two sons, after they get married, also died. What? And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Man, this lady, Naomi, whose name means pleasant. She goes out here, follows her husband. Husband dies, kids get married, they die. Now there's these three widowers together. And it's a mess. What do you do when hope dies? What do you do when hope dies? What do you do when it looks like this is over? What's interesting about these three women, they've each buried their husbands. So they all have shared pain. They can relate to each other, which is a good thing. You always want to be around people. Sometimes people who have gone through something, can help you through a situation because you have shared pain. <clears throat> now, let me, let, me, let me drive this last piece home here. Um, there's another thing about um, Moab uh, that we need to see. And I want you to turn to Psalm 108. Psalm 108. And we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. And verses 8 and 9, it says this about, about Moab. It says, Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. These are like tribal areas of Israel. Judah is my scepter. But watch for a saying. Moab is my washbowl. Huh? Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Over Philistia I, Philistia I will shout aloud. Moab is my washbowl. Previously Judas is my scepter. Good thing Moab is my washbowl. Some people think that means like toilet bowl. Now you start putting that together. Moab is a symbol of pride, like arrogance. And then he says it's also a toilet bowl. Now you think, oh my gosh, This father, who tried to do the right thing, but went with his own thinking, he leaves the promised land and he goes for the toilet bowl. And he takes his children into a toilet bowl. It's what he does. Because he's walked outside the will of God, outside the scriptures. And that's a dangerous place to be. Now, they stay there 10 years. 10 years out of the will of God. 10 years. You ever notice this? That sin will take you where you do not wish to go, keep you longer than you really want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's what it does. It took him, it kept him longer, and it cost him everything. Cost him everything. See, this is this is a great five verses on using wisdom of God in your decision making and slowing things down. Because everything just goes upside down in a heartbeat, goes sideways fast. These three women now are totally broken, living in a broken world. And it would seem almost hopeless in their lives. But here's the great thing about God. God's a redeemer. He's a savior. And when a person repents and retraces her steps and gets back on the right road. God can now begin to little bit at a time. If you stay on that right road, not like I'm back for a month and things are good, so now I'm going to go back to my old ways. No, that doesn't work. You can't fool God. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, as he reaps. In other words, God's not like your parents. You can't pull the wool over His eyes. But you stay on that road, and little by little by little, as you make Bible biblical decision making again, then God can redeem. God can bring some stuff back in your life. God can bring success back. He can do all the things that maybe you lost. And we're going to see that in this book because this book is a beautiful book of the redemption of a family and how God can take it from catastrophe to just an outstanding, outstanding life. Well, I'm going to stop right there after verse 5. And hopefully that was a good foundation to build off of as we begin this little letter of Ruth. So, good to see you again. We'll talk to you soon this Sunday. We'll be outside 6.30 in the evening right out in the parking lot as we continue our series, The Last Call. See you later. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions or need prayer, please send us an email to hello at nbcc.com. We'd love it if you would subscribe to this podcast and take a second to rate it. Until then, we'll see you next time.